vocation. And I well remember those days when I didn't, for many years, I didn't have an assistant pastor, and it could be difficult to find pulpit supply. So I was really happy to just help him step in and let him have, a, I'm sure, a well-deserved break. I know this COVID time from talking to several pastors has been a hard time for pastors and elders as well as it's been for congregations. But it's also really a delight to see you. I love you dearly, and uh, I know there are others who are watching by the live stream, but uh, very few things I'd rather do than share the word with you and and open up the word. And, And as I thought about what to preach on, I thought I'd really like to bring you some spiritual comfort food, if possible, as the Holy Spirit helps me. And uh, for me over the years, one prime source of comfort food has always been the first letter of Peter. Um, I think partly that's because as a new Christian many years ago, it's the first book of the Bible that I really studied. I remember having a thin little InterVarsity Press inductive study guide to First Peter and going through it and devouring it and just being so uh, educated uh, and thrilled uh, by what I was learning. And so that's, it's always kind of been a, a go-to uh, book for me, uh, this, this great uh, letter. And uh, I just have one or two sermons with this week and next week, so I'm certainly not going to go into a long background or introduction to the letter of First Peter. But I do like Calvin's comment. Calvin says, The main purpose of this letter is to raise us above the world. And so to prepare us for the battle of our spiritual warfare. And I think that's right. If you read 1 Peter, you see many references to suffering. Uh, The believers' lives were very uncertain. Could be dragged into the arena, crucified, killed, sold into slavery at any time. And Calvin is right to say that Peter's trying to raise us above that. Not to avoid it, but to equip us for that spiritual warfare. And so then, if you'll, if you'll think of it in that regard, let me read our text for this morning, First uh, Peter 1, verses 3 through, 3 through 5, and then, Lord willing, we'll look at the few other verses uh, next week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let us pray. Thank you for this uh, wonderful word from you, Lord. Um, And and I do pray that it would be comfort, um, food for my brothers and sisters this morning, not in some escapist sense, but, but to comfort us that we might courageously um, fight the good fight of faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The sign said, nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Patsy noticed that she even took a picture. It was on our fire department over here, a little sign it put out. We have a really good fire department, but that wasn't the wisest advice I've ever seen. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Well, plenty of us are grasping for peace these days, and it seems like there are plenty of things to unsettle us, aren't there? COVID and unrest and racial issues and nasty politics and everything else. 
But the message we seem to get, it seems to me, is always bad news. And it's one version or another of, it's on you to fix this. It's on you to dig deep enough into the resources you have to somehow find peace and overcome anxiety or, or to deal with all these problems that we're facing. To me, that's bad news. That's just another burden. It's just a kind of other law that someone has made up. I much prefer Peter's counsel, and I think his is really good news. Because Peter is going to tell us that peace can be found, but that peace comes from totally outside of you. It's not inside you. It doesn't come from within. It comes from without. And isn't that the message of the gospel? As Peter writes to his scattered, it's interesting, Pastor Will, or Elder Will Wilson was praying about being scattered, and uh, as we are, in a sense, by this, this uh, um, virus. And Peter is writing to those who are scattered, exiles, Christians, around in various places, and suffering people. And, and notice how he begins. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a radical approach. He doesn't begin by saying, okay, here's what we need to do about suffering. Uh, let's strategize. Let's think about this. Let's plan on this. Not, not, that there's, not that it's wrong to plan and strategize in certain areas. He begins with worship. He says, look up. Look ahead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What if we did that with every trial that God brought our way? We embraced it with worship. And sure, then you do the practical things you have to do. I'm not saying that we don't. But begin with worship. In the midst of the trial, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you are faithful. And what a reminder he gives to every believer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. If you look in the Greek language of our passage, that verb, born again, is the key verb in these verses. The others spin off it. So we have a clear idea of what Peter's main point is. He's, he's celebrating uh, the fact that, that by God's grace, we're born again. And so... Dear Christian, think of this, even in the midst of trials, as God has worked in your life, do you realize that you have received mercy? And I shouldn't say mercy. Peter says, great mercy. You have received great mercy, far beyond anything that we deserve or imagine or even can ask or think. Blessed be the God and Father who has caused us to be born again in his great mercy. What a wonderful word this born again is. I guess it got trivialized a little bit back in the 70s when everybody was talking about being born again, even the secular media. and Oh, are you a born again Christian? Well, we know from our Bibles that there's no other kind of true Christian than a born again Christian. And Peter certainly is thinking about what the Lord Jesus Christ said to Nicodemus. And you, of course, remember what he said. That seeker who came to him by night 
Nicodemus, for all your knowledge and all your learning, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And for years in my own thinking, I was thinking somehow born again is something you had to do. And somehow a light went off and said, wait a minute, Jesus is not telling Nicodemus to do anything. He's describing what God does. Because he goes and talks about the work of the Holy Spirit and the blowing of the wind and a mysterious work of God by which we are brought from death to life, regenerated and made heirs of the kingdom of God. Born again. Brought from death to life. Christian, think of it. We ought regularly, when we're waking up in the morning or going to bed at night, no matter how good or bad the day has been, thank you, Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have given me great mercy. And by your mercy, you've enabled me to see the kingdom of God. So Peter celebrates the fact that Christians have been born again. And now I want you to notice that this main verb spins into three glorious possessions that the church has. Three glorious possessions that we have in Christ. Peter says we've been born again, first of all, to a living hope. Secondly, we've been born again into an inheritance that is imperishable. And we've been born again unto a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what we've been born again to. Uh, A living hope, an inheritance, and a salvation. Of course, those three things are intimately and organically connected to each other. We dare not pull them apart, but we can't examine them in series because that's what Peter does. So first of all then, Brothers and sisters, if you've tasted the grace of what it is to be born again, let us rejoice that we have a living hope in the face of death. We have been born again, says Peter, the end of verse 3, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's what Peter has in mind. The fact that he immediately goes to Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he's thinking about a living hope in the face of death. Death, the last and final and great enemy. And the Christian has hope in the face of death. And if that's true, then everything else is cut down to size as well. If you follow the news, and Patsy and I have kind of made a pact with each other not to follow the news too much. Uh, Just kind of gets depressing. But you don't have to to, to follow it very much to get this kind of the sky is falling mentality. And the very worst thing, according to the media, is that someone would die. The death toll is counted up every day. And and I don't make light of that. Death is, is a sorrow. Death is a result of the curse. Death is a tragedy. You lose a loved one. I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to make light of that. But my friends, no Christian should ever say that dying is the worst thing. That's not the worst thing. Living and dying without hope is the worst thing. That's the very worst thing. 
And Peter says, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As that wonderful hymn says, Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, your sting, is gone forever. We are united to Christ. And, and what is this living hope? Surely he's talking about eternal life. And again, he's been listening to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll remember in John 17, Peter no doubt present to hear the very words. I'm sure he was. Jesus says this, as he's praying to the Father, he says, this is eternal life, Father, that, we might know, that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. To know God the Father through his Son. And as Paul will tell us in Romans, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, this is a hope that does not disappoint. Haven't we all had disappointed expectations? That's part of life in a fallen world. Haven't we all had hopes that have been dashed? Yes, yes, and yes. But this is a hope promised by God and certified by the work of God and anchored in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is surely a hope that does not disappoint. I must ask you this morning, those present, those perhaps watching on the live stream, do you have a living hope? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you say the amen to this? Do you know what I mean when I talk about this living hope? Well, if not, here's my counsel to you. Go and pray to God the Creator that he would enable you to know the Lord Jesus Christ through his word and by his spirit. And I promise you that if that's the sincere desire of your heart, then that means that God has put that desire there, and I guarantee you he will never turn you away. Jesus never turned away anyone who came to him and sincerely cried out to him. And that would be my counsel to you if you do not know this living hope. So Peter celebrates that we have been born again to a living hope in the face of death. And then second, we have been born again, as he puts it in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's interesting that in the Greek, each of those three adjectives begins with the letter alpha, and I think Peter's using a little poetic alliteration there. But either way, there's a poetry of the soul here. Think of that, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The earthly lives of those to whom Peter was writing were uncertain at best. This may well have been during the persecution of Nero, when Christians were literally thrown to the lions. But certainly persecuted, marginalized, as we say today, kind of viewed as the scum of the earth. Their earthly lives uncertain. And in parallel ways, that's one of the things about life today, is it not? Does it not seem so uncertain? I hear people say, well, I'll do such and such 
when things return to normal. You hear people saying that? I, I say that. Well, I hope when things get back to normal, I'll be... But what does that mean? What does normal mean? Is, is there some assurance that life is going to go back to the way it was back in January of 2020? I don't think there's any guarantee of that. I'm not trying to be a doomsayer either. I'm just saying it's the uncertainty. And so Peter says, what I want you to know is the inheritance that you have. That God has promised you. Whatever else happens that's uncertain, you have this inheritance. And that word inheritance has a wonderful Old Testament pedigree. When God spoke to Abraham, he promised him a land. He promised him that they would be a great people. And that would come about through faith in the gospel, even as it was revealed then. And in the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of that inheritance promise, where believers now have not just, not simply a land of Palestine, but what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter talks about that in his second letter. Jesus says, The meek, those gospel believers, will inherit the earth. And when it comes right down to, to, to it, if you ask me, well, okay, but, but, but like, what is this inheritance? This inheritance is God himself. I will be your God. You will be my people. He will dwell with us in the new heavens and the new earth. Read the book of Revelation. There's no temple there. There doesn't need to be one. Why? Because the Lord God dwells there. He is their light. He is their temple. That is our inheritance. And not only an inheritance, but just to as it were, maybe overcome our skepticism or underline our belief, he describes this inheritance. Different translations translate this different ways, but but imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. My dear friends, is there anything else in your life that you can say that about? That you can say it's imperishable? It's undefiled, and it's unfading. I don't think there's one thing. Can you say that about your health? Certainly not, as I learned the hard way a few years back. No, you can't say that. Um, Can you say that about your money? No, you can't. Have you paid any attention to the stock market lately? Don't pay attention to the stock market. Especially if you're retired. I've said to Patsy a few times, I think I might need to send out some job applications. (laughs) But seriously, can we say that about our possessions? We can't. Moth and rust destroy. And even, can we even say it about our beloved friends and family that, that, that we will have this imperishable, undefiled, and unfading bond with them? No, we can't say that. I can't stand up here and lie to you. They could be gone tomorrow. We could be gone tomorrow. But Peter says, God says to us, you have this. You have this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and absolutely will not fade away. Peter illuminates this a little bit further where he uses the same word in verse 23 of chapter 1. 
He says, since you have been born again, there's the born again word again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And what does that mean? Through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There you got it. In contrast, God, his promises, the inheritance, abiding forever and unshakable, and on the other hand, everything else is just like grass, like the wind that blows through it. A wonderful promise that God gives us. And it's also interesting in chapter 3, verse 4, Peter comes back to this word here in a character, in a, in a character quality. I think this is interesting. He's talking here about godly wives. And he says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the, here's the word again, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The point being, those who've been born again and walk with God by faith begin imperfectly but truly to take on some of those imperishable qualities. I think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 about love won't fade away. Everything else will. True, divinely generated love never will. And the final thing I want to say about this inheritance is if this were not enough, you know, you hear people talking about putting their money in the bank or people saying, I don't trust banks. I'm not putting my money in the bank. I'm going to go dig a hole in the backyard and put my money there. Um, Well, God has a bank, and this is an impregnable bank, and this bank will not collapse or go out of business. Notice what Peter says. This uh, inheritance at the end of verse 4 is kept in heaven for you. That's where it is. The earth may shake, mountains may fall into the heart of the sea, people may get sick from COVID, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, I don't. But this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Talk about a secure investment. I highly recommend it. So, we see that we are born again to a living hope. We're born again to this wonderful imperishable inheritance. And then finally, I want to note that we are born again into a wonderful salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice verse 5. Interesting, not only is our inheritance guarded, but we are guarded. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. One of the things we should understand about the New Testament writers, and I think they differ from us in this, they were persuaded and compelled, and their living was shaped by the fact that the end is near. A little bit later on in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, he'll say this. No, nope, got the wrong verse. I mean verse 7, 1 Peter 4, 7. That's what he says. The end of all things is at hand. And that's to have a practical application. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You see that? The end is near. 
How should we live then as people who know the end is near? Be self-controlled, he said. Live godly lives and pray fervently. And as it were, focus on what really matters. You know, these light and momentary afflictions, they're hard to go through, they're difficult. I know that from experience, so do you. But ultimately, they're not the main thing. What is the main thing? Chapter 1, verse 13, it's it's as if this is Peter's application of all that I've been talking about. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I know people scorn and say, oh, if you're heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. That is not true. He's saying you can only be godly and of earthly good if you are heavenly-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you. Why? Because that's the only sure thing. That's the only certain truth. That's the only imperishable reality. Notice he says a salvation ready to be revealed. And like many words in the Bible, if we use them too often, I suppose, they become a little bit cliched. But salvation means rescue from real enemies. If you look at the use of salvation in the Old Testament, people were being rescued from giants and from Philistines and from pestilence and from all kinds of nasty things. We need to keep that sense of what salvation is. We're saved from all kinds of nasty things. And I think as the New Testament would would, um, describe it, we are saved from the world, from the oppression and conformity to an evil age. We're saved from the flesh, that is, from our own sins, God saves us from them, which are destructive, and from the devil. And God saves us for himself. So that's salvation. And, but, and, and as, I, as I, I, I mentioned as I was reading the verse, note, note, the, note the parallel here. Peter is such a stylist. He really has an elegant style in, in writing here. In one hand, our inheritance is kept in heaven. On the other hand, we are kept on earth. Do you see that? We are guarded, as it were, right translation here, we are guarded through faith by the power of God. So God is not only keeping our investment in heaven, as it were, his inheritance, he's he's guarding us. Edmund Clowney uh, was one of my professors at Westminster Seminary. Um, he's now with the Lord. He's enjoying this inheritance now, even as we speak. And uh, he re- left us a, a wonderful commentary on 1 Peter. And I love uh, his comment uh, on this verse. He says, we are in protective custody. Don't you like that? God has put us under arrest to keep us safe for his day. I love that. That's exactly what happens. And you realize that when God saves someone, they stay saved. When God causes someone to be born again, they stay born again. And and traditions in the church that teach otherwise, they're way off base, biblically, and in terms of sound doctrine. No, when God saves someone, they stay saved. Because our inheritance is kept in heaven, And we are kept on earth. I think the Lord knew I needed an illustration to close the sermon with. So 
I got this message this week on social media from someone, and they said, are you the man who was assistant pastor in Calvary Willow Grove back in the late 70s? I don't know who the message was from, but I said, yeah, that's me. I was assistant pastor in Willow Grove near Philadelphia back in the 70s, and then they wrote back immediately and said, this is John and Eva Stauffer. You led us to Christ in 1979. Oh, my goodness. I hadn't thought about John and Eva for a long time. I never met a couple more ready. I did, I did nothing. I, I was the assistant pastor, so I'd go visit people who visit the church. John and Eve were there. I think they had a little child and another one on the way at that time. And I'm making the chit-chat, you know, oh, how long have you lived here and all that? And John stopped me and he said, Pastor, we don't want to talk about that. We want to know how to become Christians. And I just about fell off my chair. As I think back on that, it's kind of like, um, remember in Acts when the church is praying fervently for Peter to be released from prison, and then he's released from prison and he shows up, and they don't believe it's really him. <laughs> That's kind of what it was like. So I, I, I opened the word with them, I prayed with them, they did receive Christ, and I was helpful, I, I helped disciple them early on in their Christian life, but I, you know, I hadn't heard from them for many years. And so I wrote back and I said, you guys were so hungry for the living waters, and they immediately wrote back and said, we still are. But here's the real point of this story. John had three brothers, Jimmy, Pete, and Leon. And they were all new Christians in our church. Uh, and two of them particularly, Jimmy and Pete, I knew pretty well because they were in the ministry that Patsy and I led for college and career kids. And I was a little hesitant to ask about this. And I shouldn't have been, God forgive me. But I said, what about Jimmy, Pete, and Leon? Are they still walking with Christ? And the immediate answer is, you bet they are. They are still walking with Christ. Okay, Lord, I got the lesson. When you save somebody, they stay saved. When you cause somebody to be born again, they stay born again. Because you keep them by your power through faith. Peter says, this is the last thing I'll say, this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. We, we rightly think of salvation as having been revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel and his death and resurrection, rightly so. And we can speak of being saved and we can speak of being justified. But there is a dimension, there, there is a climactic quality, there is a, a, a consummate reality of our salvation that has not yet been displayed. And, and I think that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, here's where you live in your trials, but just remember, the full display of salvation is waiting in the wings. You need to live thinking that way. You've been to concerts or you've been to plays. You know how it is, right? You go into the in auditorium, chit-chat, chit-chat, having fun, and then what? The lights will flicker, and everybody gets quiet because the band is in the wings or the the actors are in the wings, or the performance is in the wings, and they're just about to raise the curtain. That's what Peter is saying of where we live. Don't ever forget it. We're in the auditorium. The true light has shined. And now waiting in the wings is the final, full display of God's wonderful salvation. I pray that that will be comfort food for your soul and for mine.